realize you know they were coming in for sleep apnea evaluations or a history of sleep apnea i don't think they even realized how bad or poorly controlled their sleep was because of their work they just kind of assumed that was the natural state and started talking to them about how they sleep when they get home or how bad they feel and it was kind of sad so i had to kind of like backtrack with them because they had seen a few other doctors so let's just talk about your sleep in general forget the sleep apnea piece for a moment like your shift work is <laughs> i didn't want to say killing you but your shift work is certainly impairing you it sounds like and we can do better than this hey there poem casters Back at you with another episode. I've got a special guest here with me today. His name is Matthew Smith, or for those of us local, Smitty. He is our sleep guru on campus, super passionate guy. He's trained in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine, did his residency at Orlando Medical Center, followed by his fellowship at Norwalk, as well as at Yale. Thanks, John, for having me today. I'm excited to be here and talk a little bit about some sleep medicine issues. It's one of my passions. I love sleep medicine. Like you said, I'm trained in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine, but if anyone asks me, I'm pretty open and honest with it that I love doing sleep medicine. He makes my ICU heart hurt because he likes sleep better than ICU, but it is true, but we still love him. (laughs) I've been super interested in doing this episode for a really long time actually doing shift work myself, as I'm sure a huge percentage of our listeners do, I am really interested to hear in what you have to say about how to do this better. But unfortunately, first we have to get through some of the reasons it's so dangerous, which uh, when writing this made me want to quit doing shift work, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, But let's talk a little bit about some night shift physiology. What happens to your body when you have to do night shift? Yeah, that's a, always, a, I think, a good starting point is to try to help make people understand um, why does night shift hurt you and why do you not feel maybe 100% when you're working at night and trying to sleep during the day, All right? So these sleep-wake times that are imposed by our work shifts or our work schedules, they are sort of running counter to the normal light and dark cycle, number one. So that's the inherent, you know, intrinsic rhythm of the day that you really can't change. But often people in night shift work, they don't sleep really well. And that's another part of the process is that if you're not sleeping well and your duration of sleep is shortened while you're awake, when that's during work, while you're awake for these night shifters, you're building up this sort of propensity to want to go back to sleep which causes people during night shift to feel sleepy and not perform their best, which is a huge problem. Unfortunately, even beyond this, many night shift workers are working in industries where people's lives are on the line, right? These are safety occupations, whether you are a commercial pilot, right? Whether you are driving a large semi-tractor trailer truck, whether you are a physician or working in the medical world, these are all kind of highly dangerous professions when you're working in a sort of non-optimized setting or not at your best. Yeah, I guess by nature, if you're working on night shift, you're doing an essential job. Basically, I think so, because there are a few people, or at least far in between, that want to be up in the middle of the night. If you give them a chance, they'd probably say they'd rather be sleeping. 
And so it's hard to find these sort of uh, evening owls or night owls that truly prefer to be up in the middle of the night saying, man, I just feel wonderful at 3 a.m. I just wish I could work my whole life at 3 (laughs) a.m. Let's back up just a sec with the processes of what we consider uh, disturbances in sleep and alertness in shift workers. And we sort of say there's this two-process model of wakefulness and sleep. Um, We call this process S and process C. Uh, Process S is that drive for sleep. It's really dependent on the time since you last slept. All right, so if you're not awake for a very long time or you didn't sleep very well the night before, you tend to feel sleepy because of that, right? You're, the, the sleep drive is building up throughout the day. The more you awake you are, the more you're forced to be awake. The next, second process is that process C I just said. That process is sort of the inherent rhythmic variation of sleep propensity. That occurs independently of how much you've slept the night before, right? That's more governed by that light and darkness, the activities you do in the daytime, right? So the schedule you keep for eating, the schedule you keep for your exercising, schedule you keep for, you know, sexual activities in the bed and everything like that. Believe it or not, all of those processes help calibrate our brain to when we should be awake and when we should actually be asleep. So now if you start altering those or working against those naturally, you're going to run into issues because already you're fighting your own physiology in a sense. So that's really the, I think, the important circadian piece of this, understanding the two process model, that process S and that process C. When you start um, working as on the night shift, you're kind of going against that. So it, to give an example, if you look at a, a day worker, right, a day shift person, uh, they go to bed when their sleep drive is high, right, because they've slept all night. They are awake all day working, and then by evening time, well, their body is telling them, hey, you know what, there's an increased drive to fall back to bed now. Uh, let's go to sleep. And also, at the same time, their, their inherent circadian alerting signal is starting to go down. So it's becoming evening time. The darkness is allowing melatonin to be um, you know, produced and released by areas of your brain. And that increase in melatonin, along with that lower circadian alerting, and then the drive to sleep all adds up, and you go to bed, you fall asleep, which is pretty cool if you think about it, right? To the really human is. brain to just randomly fall asleep and thankfully we all most of us will wake up back up in the morning feeling well reasonably refreshed when things go well that whole process is pretty cool and uh, one of those interesting factors about sleep in general and now we're throwing in so our circadian rhythm the sleep disorders that occur and this is not even related to shift work disorder i think about all the things that can go wrong during sleep itself whether these are abnormal behaviors like sleep eating or sleep walking, uh, REM behavior, you know, behavioral sleep disorder, obstructive sleep apnea, people that may have narcolepsy, um, and all kinds of other things in between there. Those are all the problems with sleep itself. And that's not even, that's not even concerning or taking into account the shift work disorders. And then let's throw in the social factors, right? Well, most shift workers, whether you're a evening shift worker, whether you're a night shift worker, or whether you have a rotating shift, well, you still have to get your errands done, right? The dry cleaning still has to be done. You still have to pay your bills. You still have family and friends and obligations with them. So all that has to be squeezed in between there as well. And if you're working in the middle of the night and supposed to sleep all day, that becomes an even more onerous task on you to try to fit that all in, get restful sleep, and still get to work and feel refreshed and ready to go when you're in the job site. 
So you have a lot of factors going on there, and they're all competing for your time, your energy, and of course, they can all be interfering with your sleep too. Let's let's backtrack a bit and just can we do a real quick basic stages of sleep? Because as a non-sleep mm-hmm. person, sometimes I kind of forget these basic stages and, and why each one is so important. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, the architecture of our sleep are the stages. We basically break it down into REM and non-REM sleep. Our non-REM sleep is sort of stage one is our lightest sleep. Stage two is intermediate and where we spend most of our night. And stage three is the deep delta sleep, what we often re- consider the nice restorative sleep. A lot of people feel pretty good after they've had a good night of delta or N, uh, non-REM or N-REM stage three sleep. And then, of course, we have our REM sleep. It always catches a lot of, I think, media attention. Our REM sleep is where we do most of our dreaming. And so when you've had a, a very loosened dream or a dream that's very vivid, obviously you were in REM sleep during that phase. And it's pretty normal for people to remember glimpses of a dream. It's a little bit more, not abnormal, but it's a little bit rare to remember the entire dream itself. So, you know, when people wake up and they sometimes like, wow, I was just dreaming about something and it was something with a car chase in it, but I can't remember all the details. Well, that's pretty normal. Your body tries to wake itself up. And we think mostly be so that you can realize what the difference is between the dream state and the wakeful state. Hmm. So that the entire dream doesn't carry over into wakefulness, right? You know, you're able to tell the difference between dreaming and wakefulness. Now, unfortunately, people who can't do that are sort of like narcoleptics, where they kind of go in and out of this dream sleep all the time or REM sleep. They often get misdiagnosed with psychiatric conditions, but what they're really experiencing is this carryover of dream REM sleep into wakefulness. And the body's having trouble figuring out which is which. So they start to almost feel like, wait, am I in a dream or is this reality? It sounds terrifying. It sounds terrifying. It's kind of like living in a movie, but when the movie's your life, it's not so fun. <laughs> so I've asked you this in person before, so I'll ask you this while we talk about the stages. So I got my Fitbit on. I can pull up my last night's sleep show to you. I actually don't want to show it to you. It's not that good. <laughs> okay. But uh, should I be like really trusting and, and honing in on all the different stages it's telling me and on my Fitbit or... Yeah, I I definitely take that with a grain of salt. I think the fun thing about the Fitbits is when we've compared them even within our own office uh, among some of the board-certified sleep physicians, we've found that they do a fairly decent job at tracking the total sleep time. So it gives you a little bit of an estimate. What they have found, though, between the light and deeper stages of sleep is the accuracy starts to fall off. So, you know, plenty of patients come in wanting to know about their Fitbits and jawbones and everything else that they wear to help them, you know, categorize their sleep. I tell them, look, if the total sleep number, you know, is like, oh, you slept seven and a half hours, well, then at least gives you a little bit of an estimate. That's pretty good. But don't pay or weigh too much attention on the deep versus the light sleep. Gotcha. So don't worry about it too much, I guess, John. You'll be all right. (laughs) Just know that you had some sleep last night. And, you know, for the most part, I tell my patients, because then you start bordering on, geez, I'm so ingrained in talking about my sleep and what it's doing. I'm watching it so heavily that you start to actually worry about insomnia. Because right now you become worried about your own sleep and thinking about my own sleep. Oh, I'm not sleeping enough. I start looking at the clock every five minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, now it's 3.15. Now it's 3.30. Now it's 3.45. I'm not sleeping still. Mm-hmm. You know when you slept well, right? It's one of those That's things true. you often don't have to think about. That's when you true. had a good night of sleep, you know when you wake up in the morning. It's those good Saturdays and Sundays where you kind of feel very well rested and you're enjoying it and you just kind of know that like your brain is firing closer to 100% mark instead of that like 70% mark. That's a, that's a really good point. I've gotten to the point now I really just look at mine kind of once a week and I can tell the weeks where I 
where my average is higher, I definitely do feel better than the weeks mm-hmm. where my average is lower. So you're, I think that's definitely the biggest. And you know, and point. now that we're mentioning that, I think it does bring up a little bit. There, there've been some more recent studies talking about the people who just don't sleep well during the week, and not just even night shifters, right? Because they have reduced amount of total sleep time. So if you're someone who averages less than six hours, like you brought up the excellent point that you know they've kind of found this sort of horseshoe shape association that people who have low short sleep hours tend to have higher mortality and people who have very long sleep hours actually have higher mortality. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of that seven to nine hours that we're looking for on average. But we didn't know about what happens if you are a short sleeper during the week because of your job. Can you make it up on the weekend? Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, there have been some studies now more recently that said if you're a short sleeper during the week and you actually do sleep in on your Saturdays and Sundays, some of these people have the same mortality risk as people who are normal sleepers, seven to nine hours a night. So this kind of throws a little bit of some of the things we thought on its head saying, hey, maybe you can make it up and maybe actually it's a little bit protective to your body to make up some of that short sleep on the weekend. If your kids will let you sleep in, that is. I was just saying. Yeah. <laughs> see, I'm going to tell the wife that next week and see <laughs> so what there happens. you go. So then you say, honey, I need, I need an extra few hours. Can you take care of the kids? Um, I'm sure my wife would want to throw something at me. Um, but, you know, hey, it, it may work. And if it makes you feel good and someone's there to help you out to make it happen, then go for it. So just some interesting facts we've pulled together for you on why this is so challenging. So 60 to 80% of shift workers have chronic sleep disturbances. Stomach disorders are about four to five times more common in shift workers. Eight times as many gastric ulcers. 80% of shift workers complain of fatigue. And there's obviously more automobile accidents associated with shift workers. Divorce and abuse rates are higher among those who work night shift. And depression is more likely decreased fertility in women, and decreased sperm count in men. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, and it's, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's a lot. And <laughs> there's a lot of disorders and problems associated with night shift work. And I wish we had better ways to combat this. If you just look at all the chronic problems that people present to their regular doctor with, I think this can easily be overlooked and worked up for other problems. But sometimes it really is as simple as, geez, it sounds like your job is killing you. Well, in this case, right. I mean, it almost seems like it's the truth. Mm-hmm. If you look at other problems that we see in night shift workers and the more serious ones that land people in the emergency room or in the hospital frequently, there have been large meta-analyses of night shift work. Over 2 million people surveyed in some of these analyses. Increased risk for myocardial infarctions, ischemic strokes, and then on top of that, like you said, the uh, stomach disorders, gastric disorders, I, I throw in there obesity, mm-hmm. di- diabetes, uh, increased inflammatory markers in general. And there's even been some studies with um, females with breast cancer, where they looked at females and breast cancer. These were night nurses. And a lot of these nurses had worked over 30 years as night shift nurses. And unfortunately, um, they've, they've found an increased uh, association of breast cancer in these women. So these are all horrible things to have to deal with because of night shift work, where, like we said, uh, night, you know, your work is almost literally killing you or at least making you sick. Let's hit those survival statistics real quick. So if you had four hours of sleep a day, that was associated with 10 times the mortality of those who slept seven to eight hours a day. 
And in those studies, they found oversleeping to try to compensate did not help. It actually exacerbated the problem. So sleep and survival re really is a good predictor of mortality, unfortunately. Shift workers in general have about a five to 10 year shorter lifespan than the normal population. So this is really some important stuff we're talking about today. Maybe the most important topic we've talked about. Yeah, you know, if you think about diseases, especially lung and critical care diseases, if you think about it, we all have to sleep. And what, what more considered sometimes benign condition like shift work can be linked so strongly to increased mortality and such a striking amount of increased mortality. It's pretty scary when you think about it because it's something that you, I mean, just like smoking cigarettes, you could argue that we have some control over, you know, if you say, hey, geez, this job is really hurting me. I need to get out of this. Now, of course, finding another paycheck and source of income and uh, benefits is not always, you know, easy. Right. But if it's truly hurting your health to this point and you're really worried about your lifespan, well, geez, you really got to do something about it. Uh, you're kind of backing yourself against the wall. You can also, you know, not just the mortality in general. There was another uh, Danish nurse cohort where they looked at all-cause mortality. And once again, uh, I think that was one of the largest night nurse cohorts they were able to glean uh, data from. So there was an increased all-cause mortality in that group of uh, Danish night nurses. But they also found that there was the increased cardiovascular disease, increased risk of diabetes, and they also found increased mortality from dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. So now we're talking about some really serious things that no one ever wants to experience in their lifetime. Strangely enough, though, they did not find any association with an increased overall cancer mortality or any mortality associated to psychiatric diseases. Now, you think working all night would make you crazy. <laughs> yeah. Apparently not, at least in this Danish nurse cohort. Uh, and then also beyond the mortality, uh, a lot of people are always interested in studying cancer risk. Well, actually, they've studied this in nurses in Norway. So female nurses in Norway that have worked a long time in night nurses, I would say it's not a perfect association or a perfect study, but in multiple studies there, some small studies, unfortunately, they have found that breast cancer risk, but they also found some increased risk of colorectal cancer, hmm. endometrial cancers, and even non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in these um, groups of people. Hmm. So once again, horrible things. And they've looked at some small studies that in this involved not only nurses, but other studies that looked at uh, radio telephone operators. I'm not sure we even have that job anymore in the United States, <laughs> but uh, also flight attendants hmm. and then women in white collar types of jobs. So this increased cancer risk, we know now it's not just healthcare professionals or nurses working in the evening time. This does span other professions. So anyone who works a night shift or an evening shift, you know, certainly could pay attention to this and say, geez, what are the risks and the benefits at this point? So we have spent a good amount of time here thoroughly scaring myself. Somehow, uh, I'm, I'm still going to continue doing my job. Uh, so those listening who employ me, thank you for employing me. I'm still going to continue to work here. So you'll still show up tomorrow for, <laughs> for your work. I've got night shift coming Unfortunately, up. Unfortunately, I still have to be on call too. Right. Night, so. uh, I've still got some shifts coming up. I'm still going to work them. So we've done a good job kind of explaining why this is so bad for you and going over the basic stages. Let's talk about how to make it a little better. Some strategies for flipping to night shift. That's always a tough one. So off the bat, before you even talk specifically about flipping to night shift, you got to have good general sleep habits, good sleep hygiene, and good healthy habits in general. I don't want to spend the whole episode on that. We could do, and we might at some point do a whole episode on sleep hygiene, especially mm. since Schmidt's so awesome on the podcast. <laughs> but general stuff I can do off the top of my head, even without the help of a sleep expert, is don't have a TV in your room, don't have your computer in the room, try not to use your technology 
right before bed. What else you got for me? The biggest one for me that I used to do, don't just personally, don't just stare at the clock when you can't go to sleep. I'll either try to sleep for a few minutes and if I can, I'll get up, sit in a chair and read a book until I can get sleepy. And you've hit on a lot of the big ones that you know every person can kind of take advantage of, right? Good sleep hygiene is good for everybody. What I see in general these days when people come in, it, it really astounds me. And I, and I think this is just a sign of the times. And so it's not a bad sign of the times. It's just that technology is pervasive, right? Everything we do these days, our iPhone, our iPad, our Android, it, it's literally making time to sleep. And I think if you go back you know, two, three decades, well, you just didn't have this technology to this level. And it wasn't around you all the time, right? Someone wanted to make a phone call. Well, a lot of times it was a landline, right? It was a ground line. They had to call you and either they, you were there or you weren't there. But, you know, the TVs were not as exciting. There weren't as many programs. We didn't have Netflix, right? You couldn't just do on demand when every time you wanted to watch something mm -hmm. and stay up all night binge watching the entire season, right? You got to watch that football game that you missed on Saturday because you were working on your night shift. Uh, <laughs> you know, all those fun things. So, you got to make time for the sleep. And I, I think that kind of goes back to even everything where I'm going to mention after this part, keeping a nice regular sleep schedule. I always tell my patients, the adult brain is not far off from the baby brain when it comes to sleep. You need to set up a schedule so the brain knows when you're going to expect to sleep and when you're going to expect to wake up. And if you can keep that schedule, that's even better. Granted, it is very difficult on many night shifters and rotating shift workers to kind of keep an even schedule because their shift is always working around them. And then for the night shifters, because of the social obligations we mentioned earlier, well, sometimes they need to be up in the middle of the day. So I tell people on the night shifts, when they come in and see me, let's talk about what we can do. You said the sleep hygiene stuff. All right, when you leave sh your shift, right, let's say it's 7 a.m., sunglasses. Sounds stupid, sounds silly sometimes, but you should put the sunglasses on, right? You can act too cool for school if you want. Put those sunglasses on, avoid that bright light, avoid the sunlight, especially between the hours of 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. Keep the room nice and dark. The blackout shades are very invaluable investment to night shift workers. I love my blackout curtains. Bingo. They're and awesome. you know what? And when I used to do a lot more calls, a fellow, I had to keep room nice and dark and I had really dark shades. And also keep the room a little bit cool to kind of enhance the sense of sleepiness wanting to go to bed. So most people would say uh, 63 to 73 degrees uh, Fahrenheit uh, for a comfort, comfortable room, right? So darkness is your friend, dark shades, dark room, a little bit of coolness. Uh, and then trying to keep a sort of regular bedtime and wake time if you're a night shifter. Something I have adopted since having kids is white noise. White noise has helped me a ton. I don't know if you have any opinion Bingo. on it. I, I'm totally, you know, I wasn't always a believer in it, but um, as I've kind of practiced a little bit more and talked to my patients and even learned from my own child, I have a 20 month old now, so, and she's a big white noise um, lover and, you know, that helps her kind of sort of set the scene for bedtime. If you know, if you live in a, a big city, like we live in Atlanta, uh, and we live close to the road, so we hear a lot of road noise, including the ambulances going by to the hospital, I found that the white noise machine actually can be very useful for a lot of people. Um, including my little one. So they like it. It clues them in. And it kind of, I think it gives the brain something else to latch on to instead of worrying about all the, you know, noises, the things going on next door, your neighbors, uh, what's outside, uh, you know, any of those kind of normal things that are happening that tend to be distractions and keep the brain up instead of allow it to sleep. There are a lot of devices now even, and I'm, you know, I, I throw this out here. I have, you know, uh, no financial conflicts in this, but uh, I've had some patients come to me. There's even a device now called the the Dodo, the D-O-D-O-W. Hmm. And it's kind of like a, a metronome. It has a little bit of light and I think a little bit of sound. It runs through like eight minutes and 20 minute cycles. And it sort of uses this 
pattern generator of light and sound to slowly slow your breathing down. Hmm. So when you're more awake, right, in the autonomic nervous system, the adrenaline is flowing, you're breathing fast, your brain is running. Well, what do you have to do? It's kind of like meditation. You slow the breathing down. You think about the breathing. You bring the brain waves into focus into something else instead of what's bothering you, right? Something that can relax you instead of get you going. This dodo device, which I have found, and I started looking it up a few weeks ago. I said, you know what? This is kind of interesting. This probably works for a lot of people who just can't calm their mind or quiet their mind after a night shift or a day shift work for that matter. And so just running through something that can kind of set your brain into a, a more relaxed pattern probably enhances sleep. So those are probably natural, easy things that are very, you know, for a lot of people, really beneficial. And then that doesn't even get us into melatonin uh, right. because night shift workers, right, we know that our melatonin, it, it tends to be cued in by darkness. Um, darkness mm-hmm. is what sets off those retinal cells and the retinal cells kind of signal and through a few pathways into the pineal gland to release the melatonin. So it is darkness that helps set it off to kind of start releasing melatonin. Well, uh, for a lot of night shift workers, and there's definitely some data on this that supports the use of melatonin a little bit before bedtime in night shift workers, sort of resynchronizing or uh, realigning their circadian rhythm to sort of fake out the brain, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. to say, hey, this isn't the normal time I would make melatonin, but if I keep my room nice and dark, I wear my sunglasses outside you know, work when I get into my car until I get home, and then I give myself a little melatonin, I actually can start shifting my rhythm to enhance sleep for the night shift so that my brain starts to think that the sort of night is day and day is night. It makes a lot of sense. Yep. So we've talked a little bit about sleep hygiene. Let's just hit a, a little bit on sleep environment and making sure your, your environment is good. We've done some of this, but mm-hmm. there's some basics like we talked about blackout curtains, blackout shades, making sure you're using white noise if, if that's what you're mm-hmm. interested in. There's earplugs and eye mask. Yes. Yeah, and, and they've, they've even shown this in hospitalized patients too, right? Your sleep environment, make it conducive to what you need to do, and that's sleep. So, you know, closing the door to your room, making it cool, making it dark, uh, and taking away the noise, or at least giving you an ambient noise that your brain can latch onto, that's not so uh, distracting. Mm-hmm. And then adding in some earplugs when you need to, there's some, definitely some more comfortable ones out there than there ever used to be. The eye shade if you need to, if you're someone who's really sensitive to that light, and you find that kind of keeping you awake because you're checking, you know, the, the light creaking in, creeping in through the curtains or something like that, then the eye shades totally make sense. They've studied this in even pregnant women inside hospitals, mm-hmm. and they found that, um, you know, night, you know, shades for the eyes and uh, earplugs actually do help and then even a little bit of low dose melatonin sometimes which kind of gets us back you know into what can we give night shift workers to help them sleep or the medication wise or over the counter wise um so i think maybe if you allow me i'll segue that even into how do night shifters and shift workers uh use caffeine use melatonin and then something that's not even talked about too much that has a place i think is light box or bright light therapy Mm -hmm. and i talk to my patients about that all the time saying how to use strategic timing of light boxes uh in around their home or even at work to help increase their mood and improve their mood and their alertness during that time phase Um, so i think number one during the work hours so let's go to that Caffeine, right? Caffeine is many of our friends in the in the medical industry, but many other industries as well. 
How many cups um, are you at a day? Right. Sure. Uh, you know what? That's a good question. No one ever asked me that. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I'm usually at two to three cups a day. Yeah. Uh, and that's not always caffeine. And I'm not talking about a 21 ounce, you know, mega jumbo, <laughs> uh, you know, Starbucks coffee. For me, it's usually a small coffee. Medium is max for me. And I'll do one to two of those a day and sometimes a small cup of tea in the afternoon because I know my 3 p.m., my circadian alerting is going down. I need something to get me through that 2 to 4 p.m. And so for me, it's almost like my alarm clock at 2.30. If I haven't had my cup of coffee, I go get a small cup of coffee or a small cup of green tea. And it's really for the caffeine. I'm not really using it because I enjoy it. I know because I'm going to probably get a little sleepier and those notes that I got to do are getting a little bit harder to complete (laughs) at that time of the day. So I'm looking out for stuff like that. Now, there has been some uh, data that has come out on caffeine during night shift and work shift workers. Um, Most people say uh, anywhere from one to four cups of coffee, right? So that's, for many people, that's anywhere from 150 to 400 milligrams of caffeine during that shift. I'm definitely at the upper limit of that. So, yeah, so we're all a little guilty, right? Because some of us are addicted. We love our coffee. Uh, it makes us feel good, gives us a little boost. And if we try to get off it, of course, uh, that tolerance builds up a nice uh, withdrawal headache when we don't get that four <laughs> cups of coffee in during the day. So you do have to be careful about how much you're doing because you, you do build up a tolerance and an independence on it at some point. Uh, and so that's another thing. Sometimes on those off days, it's good to kind of uh, – reduce your caffeine maybe by a cup or two. Oh, okay. I know, I hate All to right. say that, kind of bursting your bubble here, right? <laughs> but sometimes dropping that caffeine by a little bit will help you not build up that sort of dependence and tolerance that you need. So that stays, you know, it remains your friend and effective mm-hmm. when you're on your night shift work. Um, and also I often warn people, I say, you know, it, there's some data out there to show that you can front load the caffeine when you begin work, and night, uh, especially on night shift. Uh, the, so the shift workers who work in the evening time, who work on the night shift, that sometimes you can get away with like a, a two cups, maybe two, three cups early on in the night shift. And then if you need another cup, maybe, you know, if just a few hours later, it's okay to grab that other cup. But then if you, of course, if you start doing it late in your shift before you're going to go home, well, sure, it might wake you up for those last hour or two of work. But guess what? That caffeine is likely to hang around for a few hours. When you get home, it's going to make it harder for you to fall asleep. So we often warn people, say, hey, think about, I guess, front loading, if you want to call it, your caffeine. So think about that as a take-home phrase. Front load the caffeine on your night shift or your evening shift. It's okay to have the big cup first and maybe one smaller cup a little bit later on when you need it. How late How late in the shift can I go? Let's say, let's say I get off at 7 <laughs> okay. and I'm going to get to sleep at 8 a.m. When should my last cup be? I've always told myself like 4 a.m. Yes. It's, but probably it's debatable. Should be earlier. Many people, so a lot of sleep experts, and maybe they'll disagree with me, and that's okay. A lot of people say, oh, no caffeine within eight hours of bedtime. Well, the, well, unfortunately for a lot of night shifters or yeah. an evening shift, that's pretty hard. That's unrealistic. It's yeah. unrealistic, right? They need that caffeine mm-hmm. for that last eight hours to get them through. I try to tell people caffeine in your bloodstream is probably somewhat effective for four to six hours. So if at least if you can make sure you had nothing in your system for four hours before you hit the bedtime, you're probably better off. Okay. And everyone's a little bit different and sensitive to caffeine. Gotcha. Uh, me, I, I can still have my cup of coffee in the afternoon. I have no problem going to sleep just because of the coffee. Mm-hmm. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she's a little bit more sensitive. Um, she has a cup of coffee in the evening time. She'll lay in bed just staring at the ceiling all night long. So that also plays into part there, too. Uh, and I think when you build up a tolerance to caffeine, you notice that you really don't have, I don't know about you, John, but like, you know, like I said myself, I don't, I still fall asleep even if I have a small cup of coffee. It doesn't really keep me up per se. 
So I tell, I warn people, aim for four to six hours. Realistically, for night shift workers and evening shift, it's probably closer to four hours before bedtime. So if you're getting off around seven, but you go to bed, let's say eight or 9 a.m., right? You just want to subtract that four hours and say, all right, I should probably be cutting myself off at this point. And that should help you get through, right? Because if you can still have a cup of coffee, let's say at 4 a.m., that should probably help you until get, get by until seven. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I've been doing pretty good. Right? Yeah. So that's, don't think of it as your, don't, don't take it so hard on yourself, John. You're doing okay. <laughs> hey there, Poemcasters. It's Rachel here. We'll be splitting this episode into two parts. In this episode, we have gone over the physiology of sleep, why night shift is so bad for you, sleep hygiene and environment, as well as the use of caffeine. Tune in January 21st for the next part where Dr. Schmidt and John will go over more strategies to get better sleep. In the meantime, Keep breathing, keep reading, and keep streaming. And get some sleep.